0: THE POETRY OF THE CELTIC RACES, BY ERNEST Renan. At a first glance the literature of Wales is divided into three perfectly distinct branches. The bardic or lyric, which shines forth in splendor in the 6th century by the works of Taliesin, of Anuron, and of Leewar Hen, and continues through an uninterrupted series of imitations up to modern times. The mabinogion, or literature of romance, fixed towards the 12th century but linking themselves in the groundwork of their ideas with the remotest ages of the Celtic genius. Finally, an ecclesiastical and legendary literature, impressed with a distinct stamp of its own. These three literatures seem to have existed side by side, almost without knowledge of one another. The bards, proud of their solemn rhetoric, held in disdain the popular tales, the form of which they considered careless. On the other hand, both bards and romancers appear to have had few relations with the clergy and one at times might be tempted to suppose that they ignored the existence of Christianity. To our thinking it is in the Mabinogion that the true expression of the Celtic genius is to be sought. And it is surprising that so curious a literature, the source of nearly all the romantic creations of Europe, should have remained unknown until our own days. The cause is doubtless to be ascribed to the dispersed state of the Welsh manuscripts, pursued till last century by the English, as seditious books compromising those who possessed them. Often too they fell into hands of ignorant owners, whose caprice or ill will sufficed to keep them from critical research. The Mabinogion have been preserved for us in two principal documents, one of the 13th century from the library of Hangart, belonging to the Vaughan family, the other dating from the 14th century, known under the name of the Red Book of Hergist, and now in Jesus College, Oxford. No doubt it was some such collection that charmed the weary hours of the hapless Leolin in the Tower of London and was burned after his condemnation, with the other Welsh books which had been the companions of his captivity. Lady Charlotte Guest has based her edition on the Oxford manuscript. It cannot be sufficiently regretted that paltry considerations have caused her to be refused the use of the earlier manuscript, of which the later appears to be only a copy. Regrets are redoubled when one knows that several Welsh texts, which were seen and copied fifty years ago, have now disappeared. It is in the presence of facts such as these that one comes to believe that revolutions, in general so destructive of the works of the past, are favorable to the preservation of literary monuments, by compelling their concentration in great centers, where their existence, as well as their publicity, is assured. The general tone of the mabinogion is rather romantic than epic. Life is treated naively and not too emphatically. The hero's individuality is limitless. We have free and noble natures acting in all their spontaneity. Each man appears as a kind of demigod characterized by a supernatural gift. This gift if nearly always connected with some miraculous object, which in some measure is the personal seal of him who possesses it. The inferior classes, which this people of heroes necessarily supposes beneath it, scarcely show themselves, except in the exercise of some trade, for practicing which they are held in high esteem. The somewhat complicated products of human industry are regarded as living beings, and in their manner endowed with magical properties. A multiplicity of celebrated objects have proper names, such as the drinking cup, the lance, the sword, and the shield of Arthur. The chessboard of Gwendolen, on which the black pieces played of their own accord against the white. The horn of Bran Gald, where one found whatever liquor one desired. The chariot of Morgan, which directed itself to the place to which one wished to go the pot of tearnog, which would not cook when meat for a coward was put into it, the grindstone of Tudwal, which would only sharpen brave men's swords, the coat of pattern, which none save a noble could don, and the mantle of Tegan, which no woman could put upon herself were she not above reproach. 1. The animal is conceived in a still more individual way. It has a proper name, personal qualities, and a role which it develops at its own will and with full consciousness. The same hero appears as at once man and animal without it being possible to trace the line of demarcation between the two natures. The tale of Kilhuch and Olwen, the most extraordinary of the Mabinogion, deals with Arthur's struggle against the wild boar king T. W. R. C. H. Trewyth, who with his seven cubs holds in check all the heroes of the round table. The adventures of the three hundred ravens of Kerverhen similarly form the subject of the dream of Ronebwy. The idea of moral merit and demerit is almost wholly absent from all these compositions. There are wicked beings who insult ladies, who tyrannize over their neighbors, who only find pleasure in evil because such is their nature, but it does not appear that they incur wrath on that account. Arthur's knights pursue them, not as criminals but as mischievous fellows. All other beings are perfectly good and just, but more or less richly gifted. This is the dream of an amiable and gentle race which looks upon evil as being the work of destiny, and not a product of the human conscience. All nature is enchanted, and fruitful as imagination itself in indefinitely varied creations. Christianity rarely discloses itself. Although at times its proximity can be felt, it alters in no respect the purely natural surroundings in which everything takes place. A bishop figures at table beside Arthur, but his function is strictly limited to blessing the dishes. The Irish saints, who at one time present themselves to give their benediction to Arthur and receive favours at his hands, are portrayed as a race of men vaguely known and difficult to understand. No mediaeval literature held itself further removed from all monastic influence. We evidently must suppose that the Welsh bards and storytellers lived in a state of great isolation from the clergy, and had their culture and traditions quite apart. The charm of the Mabinogion principally resides in the amiable serenity of the Celtic mind, neither sad nor gay, ever in suspense between a smile and a tear. We have in them the simple recital of a child, unwitting of any distinction between the noble and the common. There is something of that softly animated world, of that calm and tranquil ideal to which Ariosto's stanzas transport us. The chatter of the later mediaeval French and German imitators can give no idea of this charming manner of narration. The skillful Chrétien de Troyes himself remains in this respect far below the Welsh storytellers, and as for Wolfram of Eschenbach, it must be avowed that the joy of the first discovery has carried German critics too far in the exaggeration of his merits. He loses himself in interminable descriptions, and almost completely ignores the art of his recital. What strikes one at a first glance in the imaginative compositions of the Celtic races, above all when they are contrasted with those of the Teutonic races, is the extreme mildness of manners pervading them. There are none of those frightful vengeances which fill the Edda and the Nibelingen. Compare the Teutonic with the Gaelic hero, Beowulf with Peridor, for example. What a difference there is. In the one all the horror of disgusting and blood embrued barbarism, the drunkenness of carnage, the disinterested taste, if I may say so, for destruction and death. In the other a profound sense of justice, a great height of personal pride it is true, but also a great capacity for devotion, and exquisite loyalty. The tyrannical man, the monster, the black man, find a place here like the less Trigons and the Cyclops of Homer only to inspire horror by contrast with softer manners. They are almost what the wicked man is in the naive imagination of a child brought up by a mother in the ideas of a gentle and pious morality. The primitive man of Teutonism is revolting by his purposeless brutality, by a love of evil that only gives him skill and strength in the service of hatred and injury. The Simric hero on the other hand, even in his wildest flights, seems possessed by habits of kindness and a warm sympathy with the weak. Sympathy indeed is one of the deepest feelings among the Celtic peoples. Even Judas is not denied a share of their pity. Saint Brandon found him upon a rock in the midst of the polar seas. Once a week he passes a day there to refresh himself from the fires of hell. A cloak that he had given to a beggar is hung before him, and tempers his sufferings. If Wales has a right to be proud of her mabinogion, she has not less to felicitate herself in having found a translator truly worthy of interpreting them. For the proper understanding of these original beauties there was needed a delicate appreciation of Welsh narration, and an intelligence of the naive order, qualities of which an erudite translator would with difficulty have been capable. To render these gracious imaginings of a people so eminently dowered with feminine tact, the pen of a woman was necessary. Simple, animated, without effort and without vulgarity, Lady Guest's translation is a faithful mirror of the original Cymric. Even supposing that, as regards philology, the labours of this noble Welsh lady be destined to receive improvement, that does not prevent her book from forever remaining a work of erudition and highly distinguished taste. The Mabinogion, or at least the writings which Lady Guest thought she ought to include under this common name, divide themselves into two perfectly distinct classes some connected exclusively with the two peninsulas of Wales and Cornwall, and relating to the heroic personality of Arthur, the others alien to Arthur, having for their scene not only the parts of England that have remained Simric, but the whole of Great Britain, and leading us back by the persons and traditions mentioned in them to the later years of the Roman occupation. The second class, of greater antiquity than the first, at least on the ground of subject, is also distinguished by a much more mythological character, a bolder use of the miraculous, and enigmatical form, a style full of alliteration and plays upon words. Of this number are the tales of Pwyll, of Bronwyn, of Manawiddon, of Math the son of Mathanwy, the dream of the Emperor Maximus, the story of Lude and Luellus, and the legend of Taliesin. To the Arthurian cycle belong the narratives of Owen, of Garant, of Parador, of Kilhuch and Olwen, and the dream of ronabwy it is also to be remarked that the two last-named narratives have a particularly antique character. In them Arthur dwells in Cornwall, and not as in the others at Carlian on the Usk. In them he appears with an individual character, hunting and taking a personal part in warfare, while in the more modern tales he is only an emperor all-powerful and impassive, a truly sluggard hero, around whom a pleiad of active heroes groups itself. The Mabinogi of Kilhuch and Olwen, by its entirely primitive aspect, by the part played in it by the wild boar in conformity to the spirit of Celtic mythology, by the wholly supernatural and magical character of the narration, by innumerable allusions the sense of which escapes us, forms a cycle by itself. It represents for us the Simric conception in all its purity, before it had been modified by the introduction of any foreign element. Without attempting here to analyze this curious poem, I should like by some extracts to make its antique aspect and high originality apparent. Kilhuch, the son of Killeth, prince of Kelidon, having heard some one mention the name of Olwen, daughter of wise Patidon Pencor, falls violently in love, without having ever seen her. He goes to find Arthur, that he may ask for his aid in the difficult undertaking which he meditates. In point of fact, he does not know in what country the fair one of his affection dwells. Wise Patidon is besides a frightful tyrant who suffers no man to go from his castle alive, and whose death is linked by destiny to the marriage of his daughter. Arthur grants Kilhuch some of his most valiant comrades-in-arms to assist him in this enterprise. After wonderful adventures the knights arrive at the castle of Wise Padidon, and succeed in seeing the young maiden of Kilhuch's dream. Only after three days of persistent struggle do they manage to obtain a response from Olwen's father, who attaches his daughter's hand to conditions apparently impossible of realization. The performance of these trials makes a long chain of adventures, the framework of a veritable romantic epic which has come to us in a very fragmentary form. Of the thirty-eight adventures imposed on Kilhuch the manuscript used by Lady Guest only relates seven or eight. I choose at random one of these narratives, which appears to me fitted to give an idea of the whole composition. It deals with the finding of Mabon the son of Modron, who was carried away from his mother three days after his birth, and whose deliverance is one of the labors exacted of Kilhuch his followers said unto Arthur, Lord, go thou home. Thou canst not proceed with thy host in quest of such small adventures as these. Then said Arthur, It were well for thee, Gwrhyr Gwalstad Iyathod, to go upon this quest, for thou knowest all languages, and art familiar with those of the birds and the beasts. Thou, Idoel, oughtest likewise to go with my men in search of thy cousin. And as for you, Kai and Bedwer, I have hope of whatever adventure ye are in quest of, that ye will achieve it. Achieve ye this adventure for me. They went forward until they came to the Oozal of Silgri. And Gwrhyr adjured her for the sake of heaven, saying, Tell me if thou knowest aught of Mabin, the son of Modron, who was taken when three nights old from between his mother and the wall. And the Oozal answered, When I first came here there was a smith's anvil in this place, and I was then a young bird. And from that time no work has been done upon it, Save the pecking of my beak every evening. And now there is not so much as the size of a nut remaining thereof. Yet all the vengeance of heaven be upon me. If during all that time I have ever heard of the man for whom you inquire. Nevertheless I will do that which is right, and that which it is fitting I should do for an embassy from Arthur. There is a race of animals who were formed before me, and I will be your guide to them. So they proceeded to the place where was the stag of Redinerv. Stag of Redinerv, behold we are come to thee an embassy from Arthur, for we have not heard of any animal older than thou. Say, Knowest thou aught of Mabon the son of Modron, who was taken from his mother when three nights old? The stag said, When first I came hither there was a plain all around me, without any tree save one oak sapling, which grew up to be an oak with an hundred branches. And that oak has since perished, so that now nothing remains of it but the withered stump. And from that day to this I have been here. Yet have I never heard of the man for whom you inquire. Nevertheless, being an embassy from Arthur, I will be your guide to the place where there is an animal which was formed before I was. So they proceeded to the place where was the Owl of C.W.M. Colwood. Owl of C.W.M. Colwood. Here is an embassy from Arthur. Knowest thou aught of Mabon the son of Modron, who was taken after three nights from his mother? If I knew I would tell you. When first I came hither, the wide valley you see was a wooded glen. And a race of men came and rooted it up. And there grew there a second wood, and this wood is the third. My wings, are they not withered stumps? Yet all this time, even until today, I have never heard of the man for whom you inquire. Nevertheless I will be the guide of Arthur's embassy until you come to the place where is the oldest animal in the world, and the one that has travelled most, the eagle of Gwern Abwe. G. W. R. H. Y. R. said, Eagle of Gwern Abwe, we have come to thee an embassy from Arthur to ask thee if thou knowest aught of Mabon the son of Modron, who was taken from his mother when he was three nights old. The eagle said, I have been here for a great space of time, and when I first came hither there was a rock here, from the top of which I pecked at the stars every evening, and now it is not so much as a span high. From that day to this I have been here, and I have never heard of the man for whom you inquire, except once when I went in search of food as far as Lin-Li. And when I came there, I struck my talons into a salmon, thinking he would serve me as food for a long time. But he drew me into the deep, and I was scarcely able to escape from him. After that I went with my whole kindred to attack him and to try to destroy him, but he sent messengers, and made peace with me, and came and besought me to take fifty fish spears out of his back. Unless he knows something of him whom you seek, I cannot tell who may. However, I will guide you to the place where he is. So they went thither, and the eagle said, Salmon of Lin-Li. I have come to thee with an embassy from Arthur, to ask thee if thou knowest aught concerning Mabon the son of Modron, who was taken away at three nights old from his mother. As much as I know I will tell thee. With every tide I go along the river upwards, until I come near to the walls of Gloucester, and there have I found such wrong as I never found elsewhere. And to the end that ye may give credence thereto, let one of you go thither upon each of my two shoulders. So Kai and Gwrhyr Gwalstad iethod went upon the shoulders of the salmon and they proceeded until they came unto the wall of the prison, and they heard a great wailing and lamenting from the dungeon. Said Gwrhyr, who is it that laments in this house of stone? Alas there is reason enough for whoever is here to lament. It is Mabin the son of Modron who is here imprisoned, and no imprisonment was ever so grievous as mine, neither that of Law Araint, nor that of Gride the son of Ari. Hast thou hope of being released for gold or for silver, or for any gifts of wealth, or through battle and fighting? By fighting will whatever I may gain be obtained. We shall not follow the Cymric hero through trials the result of which can be foreseen. What, above all else, is striking in these strange legends is the part played by animals, transformed by the Welsh imagination into intelligent beings. No race conversed so intimately as did the Celtic race with the lower creation, and accorded it so large a share of moral life. The close association of man and animal, the fiction so dear to mediaeval poetry of the knight of the lion, the knight of the falcon, the knight of the swan, the vows consecrated by the presence of birds of noble repute, are equally Breton imaginings. Ecclesiastical literature itself presents analogous features. Gentleness towards animals informs all the legends of the saints of Brittany and Ireland. One day Saint Kevin fell asleep, while he was praying at his window with outstretched arms, and a swallow perceiving the open hand of the venerable monk, considered it an excellent place wherein to make her nest. The saint on awaking saw the mother sitting upon her eggs, and, loath to disturb her, waited for the little ones to be hatched before he arose from his knees. This touching sympathy was derived from the singular vivacity with which the Celtic races have inspired their feeling for nature. Their mythology is nothing more than a transparent naturalism, not that anthropomorphic naturalism of Greece and Indian, in which the forces of the universe, viewed as living beings and endowed with consciousness, tend more and more to detach themselves from physical phenomena and to become moral beings, but in some measure a realistic naturalism, the love of nature for herself, the vivid impression of her magic. Accompanied by the sorrowful feeling that man knows, when face to face with her, he believes that he hears her commune with him concerning his origin and his destiny. The legend of Merlin mirrors this feeling. Seduced by a fairy of the woods he flies with her and becomes a savage. Arthur's messengers come upon him as he is singing by the side of a fountain. He is led back again to court, but the charm carries him away. He returns to his forests, and this time forever. Under a thicket of hawthorn Vivian has built him a magical prison. There he prophesies the future of the Celtic races. He speaks of a maiden of the woods, now visible and now unseen, who holds him captive by her spells. Several Arthurian legends are impressed with the same character. Arthur himself in popular belief became, as it were, a woodland spirit. The foresters on their nightly round by the light of the moon, says Gervais of Tilbury often hear a great sound as of horns, and meet bands of huntsmen. When they are asked whence they come, these huntsmen make reply that they are of King Arthur's following. Even the French imitators of the Breton romances keep an impression, although a rather insipid one, of attraction exercised by nature on the Celtic imagination. Elaine, the heroine of Lancelot, the ideal of Breton perfection, passes her life with her companions in a garden, in the midst of flowers which she tends. Every flower culled by her hands is at the instant restored to life, and the worshippers of her memory are under an obligation, when they cut a flower, to sow another in its place. The worship of forest, and fountain, and stone is to be explained by this primitive naturalism, which all the councils of the Church held in Brittany United to proscribe. The stone, in truth, seems the natural symbol of the Celtic races. It is an immutable witness that has no death. The animal, the plant, above all the human figure, only express the divine life under a determinate form. The stone on the contrary, adapted to receive all forms, has been the fetish of peoples in their childhood. Pausanias saw, still standing erect, the thirty square stones of fairy, each bearing the name of a divinity. The men here to be met with over the whole surface of the ancient world. What is it but the monument of primitive humanity, a living witness of its faith in heaven? It has frequently been observed that the majority of popular beliefs still extant in our different provinces are of Celtic origin. A not less remarkable fact is the strong tinge of naturalism dominant in these beliefs. Nay more. Every time that the old Celtic spirit appears in our history, there is to be seen, reborn with it, faith in nature and her magic influences. One of the most characteristic of these manifestations seems to me to be that of Joan of Arc. That indomitable hope that tenacity in the affirmation of the future, that belief that the salvation of the kingdom will come from a woman, all those features, far removed as they are from the taste of antiquity, and from Teutonic taste, are in many respects Celtic. The memory of the ancient cult perpetuated itself at Domrami, as in so many other places, under the form of popular superstition. The cottage of the family of Ark was shaded by a beech tree, famed in the country and reputed to be the abode of fairies. In her childhood Joan used to go and hang upon its branches garlands of leaves and flowers, which, so it was said, disappeared during the night. The terms of her accusation speak with horror of this innocent custom, as of a crime against the faith, and indeed they were not altogether deceived, those unpitying theologians who judged the Holy Maid. Although she knew it not, she was more Celtic than Christian. She has been foretold by Merlin. She knows of neither Pope nor Church. She only believes the voice that speaks in her own heart. This voice she hears in the fields, in the sow of the wind among the trees, when measured and distant sounds fall upon her ears. During her trial, worn out with questions and scholastic subtleties, she is asked whether she still hears her voices. Take me to the woods, she says, and I shall hear them clearly. Her legend is tinged with the same colours. Nature loved her, the wolves never touched the sheep of her flock. When she was a little girl, the birds used to come and eat bread from her lap as though they were tame.